The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The people were filled with expectation, and all were asking in their hearts whether John might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. After all the people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In the seminary, you have these practicas every once in a while about the sacraments. And I think one of the funny things about seminary is a lot of times people don't know exactly what it is you do learn and don't learn there. Most of the time, you're just like learning theology, but all like the priesting stuff, you learn, generally speaking, on like your summer assignments when you're assigned with somebody like Father Carey or another priest. They sort of mentor you through like the practical aspects of a lot of the, pre like what I always call priesting, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. But it's, it's funny because every once in a while you have these practicals and they're just very inadequate at the particular task because by the time you get to do the task, like a sacrament, it's usually like pretty far in the future. And so one of these is the baptism practica. And so the baptism practica, I can still remember, we had a particular classroom set aside and there was a baptismal font in there and then all of my classmates and you know, I were waiting in the hallway, just tailed out in the hallway and somebody would come in and then they would do the valid form of baptism and, the, you know, the, and, and everything, and then you'd move out and the next guy would go. So it was a very, very basic task that we had to accomplish. And so I remember there was you know, the pitcher of water and then a baby doll. And we were explicitly told, do not take any pictures of this right now. They didn't want everybody, us baptizing baby dolls going out on the internet these days. And so, um, so we're going through the practice and I get up and I can't remember the name of the baby or something like that. Let's call him David. And so I get up there and then it was like, I David, I baptize you in the name of the Father. And then I poured some water in the baby doll's eyes by accident. And so then I said, oops. And so, and then our priest mentor was like, no oops, do it again. <laughs> That's not part of the Trinitarian formula. And so I was just like, okay. You know, so we really take the words of the institution of sacrament serious. So in the name of the Father, end of the Son, end of the Holy Spirit, no oops. And so that was one of my first experience learning how to baptize. Um, you know, it, it's a profound thing, our baptism, but it all starts, again, with Jesus blazing that trail for us. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about just the context of our world again and why baptism is a necessary thing in the first place. But first, I wanted to read something about why it was necessary that Jesus himself actually be baptized. And every once in a while, you look at these things and sometimes you'll summarize them. But every once in a while, um, more often is the case, you look at a saint's words and you're like, oh, those are way better than my words in the first place. So I like to actually read you what the, the saint said. So this was, um, I think it was on the Office of Readings 
This is so the, the breviary that the priests and deacons and religious pray, the liturgy of the hours. This was from one of the readings we would have read on, it was either Thursday or Friday last week, I can't quite remember. So this is actually from a sermon by St. Maximus of Turin, who was a bishop. So this was like a homily of his that was, was recorded all the way from that, that time. And so it says, the gospel tells us that the Lord went to the Jordan River to be baptized and that he wished to consecrate himself in the river by signs from heaven. Reason demands that this feast of the Lord's baptism, which I think could be called the feast of his birthday, should follow soon after the Lord's birthday, during the same season, even though many years intervened between the two events. At Christmas, he was born a man. Today, he is reborn sacramentally. Then he was born from the Virgin. Today, he is born in mystery. When he was born a man, his mother Mary held him close to her heart. When he is born in mystery, God the Father embraces him with his voice when he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The mother caresses the tender baby on her lap. The father serves his son by his loving testimony. The mother holds the child for the magi to adore. The father reveals that his son is to be worshipped by all the nations. That is why the Lord Jesus went to the river for baptism. That is why he wanted his holy body to be washed with Jordan's water. Now, pay special attention to this part here. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Someone might ask, why would a holy man desire baptism? Listen to the answer. Christ is baptized not to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy, and by his cleansing to purify the waters which he touched. For the consecration of Christ involves a more significant consecration of the water. For when the Savior is washed, all water for our baptism is made clean, purified at its source for the dispensing of baptismal grace to the people of future ages. Christ is the first to be baptized, then so that, Christ, so that Christians will follow after him with confidence. That's an amazing, amazing reality that literally by the water touching our Lord, that it's really like the water being baptized in a way. It's the water being sanctified by him being in the water itself. And then during that time, of course, they would say, you baptize in living water. So something like a river in that, in that particular case, or a lake. So he's baptized in the Jordan. And it was always symbolic when they do a full immersion baptism, that you are fully submerged under the water. So you're like in the tomb with Christ. You have died with Christ. And then when you come up out of the water, you are a new creation in Christ. You're resurrected in Christ at that very moment. It's an, it's an unreal reality that's a part of our church. But here's the context. Here's the thing that I think we've forgotten to some extent. There was a time in history, and some of you, you know, know this, where there were some things that were very commonplace knowledge about Christ, about the church, about Jesus, about what Christmas was about, even if you don't understand it anymore. It's often what we would call the age of Christendom. So much of the world, much of, you know, especially America, was, was raised in a very Christ-like atmosphere with lots of values that kind of flow from the gospel. But things have changed a lot, so the knowledge that people have, the practical knowledge, is, is oftentimes very far removed, where people had never heard of these things before. So this is the important context. That's, that's why they use the term new evangelization. 
it was actually the idea that like even us as Catholics needed to learn again because some of that knowledge in a sense had been lost to an extent and so one of the things that uh, Father John Ricardo a great priest who has an amazing ministry and some great books out there one of the ways he puts it is this he said if we're, we're created captured rescued and then there's a response so created captured rescued and then a response so the thing that we have to remember is God creates all humanity and all creation is created good. A lot of the times you'll hear something that's kind of like a sort of a dualism in the world. That's not what Christians believe. It's not like there's a power of evil and it's on like an equal battle with the power of good. That's like Star Wars and the Force and stuff like that. That's not how it works, right? So we would say that evil is a privation of good. It's a lack of good in the world. So what happens is that God creates all things good. And then Adam and Eve, the first humans, are walking with him in his will, living in his will, in paradise, in sinlessness. But they still have free will, just as the angels have free will. And then what happens is that, you know, through pride, through disobedience, through some aspects of sin, they separate themselves from God. They actually withdraw from him. It's not like he casts them out but they withdraw from him by using their free will to basically do something prideful. They want the knowledge that God has, even though they were living in, in a paradise. And so that sin is a sin that is inherited by all of humanity. So that's the current state of the world. Is, that's why we would call it, you'll hear the phrase, a fallen world. What that's referring back to is, is the state of the world being an original sin. And so there's kind of like a, a big word called concupiscence. Concupiscence is like the ever-present temptation of sin around us. It's just like right there. And sometimes we're like, you know, we just have to touch it, you know? And then that's kind of what our human condition is. That's the situation in which we live in now. And so why does Christ come to the earth? He comes into this earth as a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission for all of us. And then he lives his life starting with this moment of his baptism. His public ministry is made manifest in these moments. Then he comes for the sole mission to die on the cross for all of humanity. And that is the finality of that, of that rescue mission. It's not, the, it's not the final, final aspect of it, but that's where he conquers it, actually on the cross. And something that we all need a great reminder of, I think even more these days, is that not like you hear the phrase, oh, you know, we've won the battle, but we've yet to win the war. No, Christ actually won the war. His sacrifice on the cross conquered sin and death for all peoples at all time. What's happening now are like some skirmishes that are still like going on. And we're part, like I had a pretty great priest said, that we're part of the cleanup effort. We're part of Christ's cleanup effort until he comes again back to this earth. But we always have to remember, even when we see evil and difficulty and suffering in this world, that Christ actually has already won that battle. Even though we still have to endure it for a certain amount of time on this earth. So that's the context of which we're in. And then the sacrament, those waters that Christ made holy, is our initiation to be adopted daughters and sons of Jesus Christ. So that in that moment, 
we are free from that sin that we inherit from, from Adam and Eve through the waters of baptism. But remember, the consequences of that sin, that concupiscence, is still out there in the world. That's why we don't feel fully redeemed or fully healed yet. That's what eternal life is. That's what life in heaven is like. But this orients you, actually changes your very being. So there's a word that we use in theology called an ontological change. That's what actually happens to you at your baptism, at your confirmation, and then also in the sacrament of holy orders when a priest is ordained. What an ontological change is, it's a change to your very being, like your very essence, your soul is actually changed. And the way that I always kind of refer to it is like if you had spiritual x-ray vision, you would actually be able to look at the baptized and see it. You would be like adopted son, adopted daughter, adopted son, adopted daughter. You would see that Christ has stamped and claimed you as one of his children in his life. That's what the change is like on like a soul level, which leads us to a very important definition, but it's such a simple one. What a sacrament actually is. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. So God works through the things that humans actually know and use, things that, that appeal to our senses, things that we could see, taste, touch, hear, smell, all of those things. So water, um, holy oils, all of these different things are visible signs that we've been given, bread and wine, to give us something that is invisible, his grace. But like I said, there are times where somebody has been granted a gift to see the thing that is normally invisible and actually see it. When we hear that, in, for the example, St. John the Baptist, being able to see a, you know, something as a dove descending on Jesus as the Holy Spirit. So sort of the veil of the invisible is lifted for a moment to see that very thing. And, and it's some of the many Marian apparitions that have happened over the years, Sometimes some of the visionaries and people around those circumstances were also able to see some things invisible. For example, at many of these apparitions, sometimes priests would be present just in the crowd of hundreds and thousands of people wearing lay clothes, and the visionaries wouldn't know that they were priests with no, no previous context at all. Like I said, crowds of hundreds and hundreds of people, and they would actually know that somebody was a priest because they were able to see with sort of a spiritual vision that there was something changed about their very being, their very soul itself. That's exactly what happens to the Eucharist. It starts out as something that we know, something that we can taste and smell and see, just normal bread and wine, but then an ontological, a change at its very being matter level will actually happen and it's something else, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in our life again. But, you know, usually it still remains generally invisible under the sight of something normal that we would, we would regularly receive. Um, one thing that, you know, some of, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters sometimes um, will ask us about as Catholics, so this might be helpful, somebody might ask you is um, about, like, the different forms of baptism, like full immersion and different things like that. The church has always realized, always, since the very beginning, that there are practical implications to these things, right? So we hear in early, early texts of the church, especially St. Justin Martyr, he'll talk about, like, the Eucharist, right? 
they have always, even since like the miracle of the multitude, the feeding of the multitude, what, what was left over? There were fragments left over. And it's, it's a symbol of the abundance of God, that nothing will ever run out when it comes to him. And what do we keep? We keep the fragments left over in our tabernacle of the body of Christ. But when we do that, one of the things, even back then, they would take, the deacons of the church would take the Eucharist out to other people. There were always practical implications. People would be sick. They couldn't attend Mass, all these different things. And so same thing with baptism. So you see, there was a document in the uh, early church called the Didache, written in probably around the year 80 or 90, somewhere in between that time frame. And it was like an ancient catechism for very, very practical things. And this is what it says uh, on, on baptism itself. It says, and concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No oops. And then in Matthew 28, 19, you see, in living water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot in cold, in warm. But if you have neither, pour out water thrice upon the head in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So even in the early church, people were confronted with practical realities. We remember that like the River Jordan wasn't always just like in your backyard, right? And much of the world that had been evangelized was in like desert climates. You might not have a source of flowing living water for quite a while, but, but it's quite likely that you have water with you at that point. So the church has always tried to give us the practical to bring as many people as possible into his care, into his company. And so we remember that as Christ starts his ministry with his baptism, that our continuing ministry, once he ascends into heaven, is the sacramental reality of the church. That's what he leaves behind for us to do. You know, we remember in that same phrase from Matthew, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. It's a great commissioning to actually go out and do these sacraments left to us. So that's actually how we carry out Christ's mission once he's not with us in that walking, talking, bodily form of, of Jesus anymore. So that's our story. Our story is we still live in a fallen world, but we want to be adopted into Christ's family so that we can begin to receive the sacraments of the church and continue to receive them and be aligned to our end reality, our eternal reality. That coming up out of the water, that actual resurrection that Christ experienced is, a, is what we want to experience. And this is what every one of us wants at the end of your life. I certainly know that I do. At the moment that I close my eyes for the final time, at the moment of my death, all I want to hear is this. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. That is what our whole life here on earth is for. So that at that final moment that we can hear those words. God bless you all.